0: The HD Movie Podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 95 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell.
1: And I'm Hayley Alice Roberts.
0: And in today's episode we have a double bill of 95. We have two movies from 1995. Later on in the podcast we're going to be talking about Jim Wynorski's The Wasp Woman. But first we're going to be talking about Amy Heckerling's Clueless. The first of our 1995 double bill is another movie from Amy Heckling. We've covered the first two Look Who's Talking movies, but this is one that she did slightly later in her career and was equally as successful, if not more, than Look Who's Talking. It is, of course, Clueless.
1: There's actually a five-year gap between the release of Look Who's Talking 2, which was the potty training sequel to Amy Heckling's 1989 hit, And then the next movie she directed was, in fact, Clueless. So a completely different kettle of fish to Talking Babies. But here we are. So I'm going to read a synopsis from James Meek on IMDb to give you a brief overview of Clueless. But I'm sure most of you listening will have seen this film and probably can quote it off by heart. Cher Horowitz and her friend Dion, two of the most popular sophomores in school, play matchmakers for two teachers. Inspired by their success, Cher takes under her wing Ty a clueless transfer student. While trying to make an advantageous match for Ty, Cher attempts to find a boyfriend of her own. Several misfires take place due to poor communication before she finds the Baldwin of her dreams. Now, I assume the Baldwin kind of references like Alec Baldwin, Stephen Baldwin. Yeah. You know, this is Mary 90s. So Clueless is actually one of the first teen movies that was based on a classic novel. It is, in fact, an adaptation of Emma, the Jane Austen novel. I don't do period dramas, so I've never read it. I'm not sure about yourself, Darren.
0: I have read Emma, and I've done some of the period dramas as well. So, yeah, this is one of the many adaptations of Emma. Reworkings, reimaginings, call it what you like. It takes the basic story of Emma and then transports it to Beverly Hills with super rich kids.
1: Yeah. So this film, I think it's quite a popular, beloved film, nostalgic film for a lot of people. It's very quotable, and it's one that is considered one of the top teen movies of the era. When you look back at that era where you had all the adaptations and your American pies and all that kind of stuff. But this was one that is one of the more memorable ones that people do tend to revisit. And I can see why, but this film is just not my thing. It's not my bag. And you'd be thinking, listening to this episode, that I would probably be more (laughs) the demographic of this film than Darren is. But actually, just to flip things over on its head, Darren is a fan of this movie, and I'm not particularly... It just doesn't land with me. It's quite cheesy and girly, which is not really my bag. I can see why people like it. I can see how it has a slice of life, but with a drip of surrealism to it, the way Look Who's Talking did, how that was a... Commentary on motherhood, and this is a commentary on teenagers. But I don't know, I just didn't feel like I was enjoying this movie, and I don't think it's aged particularly well either. So I don't know, I just didn't really feel it with clueless this time around. Yeah,
0: cheesy and girly. You wouldn't think I would like cheesy and girly, but I do have quite a soft spot for quite a lot of cheesy and girly stuff. It is very stylized, I have to say. It's shot from a certain perspective, there's a lot of valley slang in it. I wouldn't say it's of its time, because I think there are certain things about the movie that transcend when it was made, but there are certain references within the movie that put it firmly in the mid-90s. Of course, it was the movie that catapulted Alicia Silverstone to stardom, and she is very good in this, playing this kind of generous but selfish type at the same time, very much like the Emma character in the novel. Of course, she comes to realise that it's better to do good for people without having selfish motives behind it, but it takes a long while for her to get to that point. And of course, that's the point of the movie, you can't have her having this conversion in the first act, because you want her to actually come to the realisation that she's Not doing her good deeds purely on altruistic means. She is trying to match people and and she's getting a bit of a kick out of that, but at the back of it, it really is kind of a what's in it for me thing. The cast is pretty good generally. I mean, you've got Wally Sean, Julie Brown, Twink Kaplan, and you've got obviously Paul Rudd in an early role looking not that much different to what he does now because. Paul Rudd has fallen in the fountain of youth. How does Paul Rudd manage to stay so young looking? Apparently he's 54 today as we're recording this. So good on you, Paul. You're looking very good for 54. The one thing I can say about this movie, as much as I like it, and it hasn't dated too badly for me, but one thing that really put my back up about this movie, and I'd forgotten that they said it, they used the R word, in this movie. I'm not going to say what the R word is, I'm pretty sure you're going to guess what it is anyway. It's a word that a lot of people used as a comedic insult in the 90s, and yes, it was bandied around a lot, but it doesn't excuse them using it in this movie. Yes, you can say that it's of its time and it's in the context of when it was made. It doesn't make it any more right than it did back then. I really cringed when they said that word. It was like, you know, it's not necessary. But I know it was how a lot of college kids talked at the time and they were throwing this insult around. It's not great. It's just... I'm not saying cut it. I'm not saying cut it out of the movie. But at the same time, when they said it, I was like, oh, God, I've forgotten that they used this word. The rest of it is fine. But if you don't like this word, I think it comes quite early on in the movie. There's a a shortened version of the same word that happens quite late in the movie. In these more enlightened times, I think, you get to that point and you just think, oh no, I I wish they hadn't used that word.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a reminder of how much culture's moved on since the 90s. And I was taken aback watching this in 2023. I was like, okay, wow, we were not as easy as we are now and again at the in those times they probably did not see the derogatory nature of that word as you said it was thrown around slang it's there it's part of the movie but it doesn't exactly hold it up in a good light and my other issue with it there's a character about midway through the film that gets introduced called christian and he is as a love interest for share and they really do play on this very stereotypical gay archetype with him, and I'm not there for it. I just did not feel this character and the way they portrayed him aged very well, and it's played for laughs. It's this whole thing how Cher's really into him, and he's very intuitive, he's into fashion, he's you know on her level. But the whole joke is it's because he's gay and he just gets on with her as a friend so it's just obvious to the audience and obviously of the characters but not share and it's just like putting this person as like a figure of fun and I just did not find it that funny I wasn't I think the problem with it was for me I mean obviously humour is very subjective and the comedy in this just did not work for me I didn't find myself laughing at too much of it and as you say the cast are great in this there's very good acting in this movie they all play it very well and I can see why people enjoy it but For me, I just didn't really gel with any of the characters and I wasn't really fussed where things went. Not a great deal happens in this movie. You just kind of go with it and it's a lot of sheer kind of talking. We have this voiceover through it and it's it's all very sort of trivial and superficial things, which I'm sure that's what they're trying to portray. That's what teenagers are at the time. Basically, that's where their mindset is. It's all about superficiality and a coming of age of what really matters
0: to them. Yeah, if you're satirising really vacuous people, the danger is that you're not interested in these vacuous people, and that's the tightrope Clueless is walking. And if you don't get on with these people, you're not going to go with them for the rest of the movie, and that's the risk it takes. I quite like the characters, even though... It's that kind of thing where characters, even if they're... Horrible in some ways. I quite like going with people who are just either immoral or amoral, and I think if you find that sort of thing funny, Clueless works. But on another level, if you're just not arsed with what any of these people do, then you're going to have a very long time with this movie and it will feel like it's dragging. And you're right about the voiceover, a lot of it is still from Cher's point of view and the fairly superficial way that she describes things. Again, there's a flip between it's funny for some, but it's just grating for others. And I think at the time, it was something a bit fresh, and it was tapping into a certain kind of lifestyle, and it was satirising the super rich kids, and how nothing really matters to them other than fashion, and very, very surface type of things nowadays I think if it's going to date anywhere the attitudes about the super rich still hold up but the characters do seem a little bit more cartoony because these days super rich people just seem fucking evil in society whereas this it's just they're poking fun it's like well they're not too bad really they may have a lot of money but they do have good hearts underneath it all Whereas if you're looking at society these days, most people who've got more money than they know what to do with are just fucking awful people. So I think it might grace a little bit with modern audiences just because of that, because they're reminded of the fact that nowadays super rich, super young people are not like that. Bit of a generalisation, but it's painting a world in which everybody is ultimately quite good. Even the people who have jobs which probably facilitate them doing awful things like Cher's dad is a litigator and he's portrayed as quite a sensitive and nice guy and he might be and with Dan Hedaya playing it he's great I love Dan Hedaya he's fantastic in this but at the same time it's trying to rip these people down for being superficial and naive and just obsessed with material wealth At the same time, it's trying to have its cake and eat it because it's also saying, well, you know, they're also quite good people. And I get that it has to walk both sides of the line. But if you're looking at it critically, can it be one way or the other? I don't think me trying to analyse Clueless as some kind of deep satire on the haves and the have-nots. It's a silly comedy at the base of it all. But you can read it that way. Because you've got Brittany Murphy's character who is, well, she's the sort of relatively disadvantaged one, but Brittany Murphy's character is still at that school, so she can't be that destitute. She is just a bit, to use the film's title, clueless, and she becomes a project for Cher to make over and try to get a guy for. and It's fun, but if you're not latching onto this sort of thing and you're not interested in the characters no amount of silly comedy is going to drag you back from the abyss in this one because if you're not going with them within the first 10 minutes, it's just like, oh, fuck these people. I don't care about them. So whereas I remember seeing it in the cinema and loving it and watching it again a few times over the years and watching it again very recently for this podcast, I still like this movie, but I can also put it into context and see how the people who are coming to this movie later could look at this and think, well, what what was all the fuss about?
1: Yeah, and as I said, I do understand why people enjoy this. You know, I'm not knocking that in any way. This is personally just my opinion. I agree with you on the cartoony nature of this film. It is very hyper-blown satire. There's an element of this isn't how real people act and behave. So you do have that Movie side to it, you're not watching something that's meant to be a serious drama or anything in that way. And of course, the cartoony element is supported by the bold fashioned choices in this. And I think this is also what holds this up as an iconic film. Like everyone remembers the outfits, especially the, the first outfit that Cher wears in the classroom with the yellow kind of plaid look. People have obviously mimicked that outfit over the years. It's probably like a popular Halloween costume if you're going down that road. And I think. Where it doesn't land with me, I used to love the teen movie genre back when I was a preteen and a teen. And I think the problem lies is just I'm getting older and I've just kind of moved on from this type of film where I just can't relate to it anymore. I think I think that's um, a major problem. Interestingly, though, looking back at Clueless, it was a lot more innocent compared to the sex comedies we got a bit later on in the 90s. One positive thing about it is the way the subject of virginity is treated in this. Because you'd assume, like, oh, somebody like Cher, oh, she's really popular. It's um, the assumption that she probably doesn't find it hard to get a guy. But she is actually saving herself for the right person. And I think that was a positive role model to portray when you've got this character who is a bit vacuous and superficial. But at the heart of it, you know, she is quite naive. And so she does have a vulnerability about her and and that adds to her likability. You know, I don't dislike any of these characters. I was just watching this and I was like, I'm just not finding this film that interesting. But as I say, I understand its place in movie history and teen movie history and pop culture. I I totally get it. I just feel that I'm just not the right demographic for this anymore. That's where it is. It's just me being old and grumpy.
0: Yeah, and usually I'm (laughs) the old and grumpy one. So this is an interesting (laughs) interesting turn of events. There, And I think you're right. I mean, if you've come to this later on, I remember going to see it in the cinema when it was out and I was much younger and it landed for me then. And there is, as with all of these things, there's a bit of nostalgia comes into play and you feel the same way that you did when you first saw the movie. There's some of that coming into play. And I did remember some of the lines in it. There's one point where Amber, who is shares nemesis, has had some nose job done and then she's in this tennis session and she's not allowed to take part because a surgeon has said something like she isn't allowed to participate in any activity where balls fly at her face and somebody says well bang goes your social life then and it's a very silly joke and it's an obvious one you know it's coming but that's the start stuff that makes me chuckle the thing where Ty gets knocked out and they're trying to keep her from slipping back into unconsciousness and they're saying to this guy, saying, well, just keep talking to her, ask her some questions. And he says, OK, right, OK, what's what's seven times seven? And they go, no, no, stuff she knows. <laughs> so, so stuff like that. It's daft, but it, it gives me a slightly warm glow remembering all of this stuff. And the soundtrack is pretty good for this. It has definitely got some kudos for the soundtrack because Luscious Jackson are on it. I love Luscious Jackson. And they're on too few soundtracks and having them appear on a soundtrack at all is a major plus point for any movie. So as soon as Luscious Jackson came on the soundtrack, it'd be like, right, I can forgive this movie anything from now on, pretty much, oh, apart from the R word. I won't forgive him for that. Like we've said previously, certain movies like Dangerous Minds, for instance, not built around the soundtrack, but given a soundtrack that's going to propel the movie along. So there's good stuff in here. I mean, even in the first few minutes, you've got Kids in America, you've got fashion and you've got just a girl within about the first five minutes of the movie. Now, the only issue I've got is that Kids in America is not the Kim Wilde version. If you're going to put Kids in America on the soundtrack, I'm sorry, it's got to be Kim Wilde. I don't care how good the cover is. It's got to be Kim Wilde.
1: I wonder if that was, like, a royalties issue or... Possibly, yeah. They they probably just could not get the rights to that version, So so it stuck in cover. Or they were just trying to modernise it, because obviously Kids in America came out in the 80s, and it's a 90s movie, so they were just updating it for the film. And, of course, yeah, No Doubt, Just a Girl, Amazing song. Yeah, you're right about the soundtrack. It does elevate the movie, and I think that's another thing. If you enjoy that music and associate the movie with that, it just kind of goes hand in hand, really. One element of this film that I found a bit creepy. Now, this is probably me overthinking things and that's fine. You can shoot me down for this. But I honestly found the fact that Paul Rudd is her stepbrother. Now, granted, ex-stepbrother. And there was a time where these two characters were brought up like siblings. So I just found the whole love interest thing a bit uncomfortable.
0: It's weird. Yes. Yeah, it is weird. They bend over backwards to say that it's okay. And they constantly remind you of this, that they're not actual blood relatives, and it's all by marriage, and it's all broken up, and so they're free to date each other. The number of times that they mention this to make you think, well, this is okay, leads me to believe slightly that this is not okay. Because if you're constantly telling the audience, yeah, it's fine if these two get together. If you say it once, yeah, it's fine. if If you give the explanation about you know, it's only by marriage. That's fine if they do it once. But along the movie, there's quite a few times where they mention the fact that he was a stepbrother, but they're not actually related. And they keep saying it and they keep saying it and they keep saying it. And by the end, you're thinking, well, I've been told this so many times. Now I'm starting to think it's not okay. And and the age gap, it's a little bit weird. But Paul Rudd's character is very nice and he's very genteel and It's trying to make his character as nice as possible so that you don't feel that she has been taken advantage of by some older guy. But I take the point because it is a weird flex for the plot. Did it need to be there? I'm not sure. They could have had him as somebody who was actually doing a job for her dad because he wants to be a lawyer. So they could have eliminated that plot point entirely. It's an obstacle that doesn't need to be there because there's enough obstacles in the way to start with, anyway, and Cher's obsessed with getting the two teachers together at the start, and there's all sorts of stuff in the middle, so yeah, quite odd. Yeah, I mean, I do like the romance between Mr. Hall and Miss Geist, that's quite sweet, and I do like the fact that when they're trying to get a suitable woman for Mr. Hall at the start, some of the dialogue is like he would be up for a major boink fest. But at that point, there was a major babe drought. So this is the sort of... This, I mean, major babe drought is such a 90s expression. I don't think I've ever used the term major babe drought in conversation, be it in the mid-90s or since. Close is a weird one for me, because I can understand why these days it wouldn't be relevant. I still really like it and I think it's really funny and I like the performances and it's quite sweet but at the same time there's another bit of me on my shoulder saying yeah but this is problematic and this doesn't work and this doesn't work and do you really want to be laughing at this and it's that sort of thing where 90s me and uh, 2020s me have a discussion after the movie about the merits of things that I loved way back when. I still like it. I have slight reservations about it, but it did everything that I expected it to on a rewatch. Sometimes you come into these things and think Is this the watch that is gonna be the point where everything comes crashing down and you find out that the movie that you loved twenty, thirty years ago is an absolute honking great, sexist, misogynist, ableist piece of shit. Now this isn't But there is always that worry when you come into these things. It's like, what did I miss the last time that I watched this? And basically I'd kind of pushed the R-word bit to the back of my mind and as soon as they said it, it was straight back in the front. It's like, oh no. No, I remember this. But the rest of it is reasonably harmless. So I don't think Clueless has committed any sort of sins other than the ones that we've mentioned. But like with any 90s movie and certainly with any 80s movie it was a different time and it's not excusing the movies but there are certain things within these movies where if you watch it with a 2023 sensibility you're gonna go oh god did I think that was acceptable back then
1: you're gonna pick holes in it it's just completely inevitable I think with any movie and it is always that risk when you return to something that you hold up in high regard so I think, for me, this wasn't a film that I was particularly attached to. I think I've seen it once back in the day. I remember the TV show. There was a TV show that came out a year later. Some of the cast remained, but Alicia Silverstone didn't rise her role. She focused on her movie career. I remember watching that. It was just very much a casual watch. It wasn't something that I was like, oh, I've got to watch Clueless. I love Clueless TV show. It was never that. It was just, oh, it's on. I'll just watch it. So this one isn't a film. That's close to my heart in any way. I was kind of okay going into it. I didn't have to worry that my nostalgic bubble would be burst. As I say, some movies of this genre land with me and some don't. It's a very interesting one because romantic comedy and teen comedy isn't always my bag. But a film that is of the same genre that I think is still very well done and I still love to this day is 10 Things I Hate About You. Now, if we ever revisit that one, I'm sure there are going to be elements of it that are just not going to land well. But on the whole, I just think that I understand Clueless's place in the teen movie canon, but it's just not one that sits well with me. And I don't really have to justify this. It's not that I hate the movie. I'm just very indifferent to it, if I had to put that into perspective.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I remember 10 Things I Hate About You and remember liking it. And again, I've got that feeling that I haven't seen it for a while, so I do have that slight trepidation about revisiting it and thinking, was there something in it that I completely forgot about it, and then I'm going to have to go and stick my head in a bucket of water the minute that something happens in it that's just a bit off the radar, basically. <laughs> Clueless, it's, it's got its fans, but it's certainly of its type, and it's very, very stylized And... It's pushing a particular point of view, and the satire, although it's quite soft pedalled, there's still this kind of weird flip between you laughing at the characters but then also being asked to care about them as well, which eventually, yeah, you do, but it's doing that sort of thing where, you know, Hollywood is like, let's knock them down first before we build them up. And this does it in a very mild way. But having seen it again, I did laugh quite a lot. I I watched it with Alison and she laughed quite a lot as well. So it still works for people who watched it back in the day. Equally, I can see people coming to this with a fresh pair of eyes and thinking, well, yeah, I've heard about this movie, but it isn't all that. And I can completely understand why they'll think it isn't all that, because it's from a different era. And what passed for hilarious entertainment in the mid-90s might not fly now.
1: And you can definitely tell that this is a film created by the same director as Look Who's Talking. It's definitely got Amy Heckling all over it, from the narrative, the way the story progresses, the surrealism, the way it has a bit of a fantasy element of it. You can definitely tell that this is a distinct style from her as a director. And what would be interesting to revisit, so following this movie, she directed another teen film called Loser, and I think that came out in 1999, 2000, around that time. And that starred Jason Biggs off of American Pie fame, so um, it was still riding that teen movie train. And that's such an interesting film because they had the Wheatus song Teenage Dirtbag as the promo for this film, and when you watch the music video and watch the film... They're just completely different. The video's set in high school. This is set in college. So I think that would be an interesting one to revisit because I remember at the time watching it and being sorely disappointed. Again, with all these movies, they are going to be outdated to a point. So at some point, we will definitely bring on more teen movies into the podcast and see what we think on a rewatch. But, you know, Clueless didn't end up in the same realm as She's All That. I mean, we already knew going in there, Darren absolutely detests that film. I did enjoy it back in the day and was quite horrified at myself. But, you know, when you're 12, you don't understand things as well as you should. So that's my defence.
0: Yeah, that's true. And again, very much like you, I came to She's All That later and probably wasn't its target audience at the time. But even not being the target audience, I kind of thought, this is just fascism, this movie. (laughs) So, So, yeah. Before I start off on She's All That again, I've, I've ranted about it enough. Nobody needs to hear me talk about She's All That again. It's like, oh, fuck, he's off again about She's All That. Even people who've known me for years is like, please stop talking about She's All That. We know you don't <laughs> like it. Rather than turn this episode into another She's All That rant, I think it's time for the scores.
1: Yeah, I will stop triggering you at this point. So, unsurprisingly, Clueless has an 81% score on Rotten Tomatoes as a tomato meter and a 76% audience score I'm not surprised there I don't necessarily see it in that like highly but I can understand you know I would go as far as saying it's probably a bit of a cult classic now it's one of those it's quotable it's iconic in its aesthetic people always remember it it's one that has left lasting impression and IMDb has given it a 6.9 out of 10, which I think that is more to the mark for me. I would agree that's where it lies. You know, it's it's a decent film. It's just me. I'm the problem here, not clueless.
0: <laughs> I don't think that's true, but I think the scores are, are stack up because you'll have a lot of people who have been fans from it from day one. And then I think the scores will be pulled down a little bit by people who've come to it later and just thought, well, it's okay, but it's not that great, is it? The space for both sets of opinions here on Clueless because as I said I've got two different views on the movie as a piece of entertainment yeah I love it I think it's great but there are things now a few years down the line that I can see where the holes are and I can see where the slight discomfort is so I think that it's iconic but it's not without its problems
1: absolutely so on that note If you stay tuned, you can listen to part two of our picks for films of 1995
0: or episode 95. And for the second half of our 1995 double bill, we head over to Roger Corman's stable for a remake of his 1959 movie, The Wasp Woman. It's the 1995 version of The Wasp Woman. So this was part of a series of movies that Roger Corman produced for Showtime for cable TV under the banner, Roger Corman Presents, and he managed to do 14 movies for screening in 1995. That's an amazing amount of product to get out within a few months. Some of the movies were originals. A few of the movies were remakes, like Not of This Earth, A Bucket of Blood, and this one, The Wasp Woman. What a movie.
1: Well, if he was producing that many films in one year, it was clearly quantity over quality, if this film is anything to go by. Of course, as we brought a big Hollywood movie to you in the last segment... This time around, we're going for something a little bit more obscure. I wouldn't say lesser known, because if you're a genre fan, you're probably familiar with The Wasp Woman. Without further ado, I'm going to head to IMDb to read you a synopsis, the only synopsis someone has bothered to write for this film, which is by blogmonstermike.wordpress.com. So in the words of Blog Monster Mike, this is what is in store in The Wasp Woman. This is the made-for-TV remake of the 1959 classic. Janice, the owner of a cosmetic company, starts to work with a doctor that has been experimenting with a miracle cure for aging. He has extracted an enzyme from queen wasps that make Janice look much younger. Then, the deadly side effect occurs, and Janice is accidentally transformed into a giant wasp woman. At night, she starts stalking her prey, which results in mass hysteria. I mean, this is very much your typical Creature Feature B movie. There's no two ways about it. This film... Knows what it's doing. It knows what it wants to be. It's incredibly cheesy, and you think this would be the type of movie that would be enjoyable. But I have to be honest; I found it quite dull from the outset. It's a very grey-looking movie. The performances are very one-note. The main character is meant to be de-aging throughout this movie, but she looks exactly the same from the get-go. Like there's just nothing to imply that she's looking younger and younger. I mean, she looks great anyway, but it's just very odd how the characters are like, oh, wow, you look so good. You look 10 years younger and that that kind of dialogue. And it's like, well, I've not really noticed the difference. What am I missing here?
0: The very first sequence when she's supposed to be really suffering from the ravages of age, they've drawn a couple of lines on her face and that's it. The makeup is terrible for the aging. And yet instantly she's transformed into Jennifer Rubin. And Jennifer Rubin is a, stunningly attractive woman anyway so that side of the plot doesn't work it's amusing to me that it is kind of a made for tv movie but it's cable tv so they can get away with a little bit more there's nudity there's some violence in fact the mpaa ratings advice for this movie it says rated r for monster violence and sexuality There's both of these things. There is monster violence, there is sexuality, but it's nothing like as interesting as you think it's going to be. It's very, very silly. The violence is ludicrous. My favourite bit of violence in this movie is Dr Zinthorpe getting attacked by his own cat, which has mutated into a cat stroke wasp creature. It's absolutely amazing. I was falling about. When it's stalking him through these tunnels. It's ridiculous. Now, one thing they do have in this movie that the 1959 movie didn't really is effects, because basically the 1959 movie is Corman's take on the fly. So when you see the wasp woman in the 1959 movie, it's just the head of a wasp. It's like the end of the fly, basically. So it's their riposte, their low-budget repost to the fly, which is a classic sci-fi horror movie. At least in this one, They've got a full wasp costume. I'm not saying it's convincing, because it isn't. But at least it is a full wasp costume. This is something that I remember seeing not long after it came out. It was on video. It was under its alternative title of Forbidden Beauty. And I remember somebody taping me this off Sky Movies. And me watching this thinking, what the fuck is this movie? But there's something hypnotically bad about it, in my case. It's terrible. I know it's dreadful. The dialogue's stupid. The characters don't really have anything to do. It's repetitive in the way that Janice just goes and kills off everybody that she thinks is standing in a way. There's gratuitous nudity in it that's absolutely unnecessary to the point of like, yeah, what do we need to do now? We're going to have this hallucination in which she thinks this woman is having sex with her boyfriend, so like, yeah, we can get some TNA in this movie. It's the sort of thing that came out in the 90s but firmly belongs in the 80s because it's that sort of movie that you would have thought would have been a top-renting VHS release in the 80s. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous from start to finish. I've met Jennifer Rubin. She's lovely. This... Movie doesn't showcase her talents to the best of her ability.
1: Yeah, there's only so much that she can work with in this film. As I said, it's very one-note. The script is very monotonous. And as you say, the scenes are ludicrous. Like She has these paranoid fantasy sequences, I guess. like As you say, the scene where she's imagining her boyfriend having sex with this younger model, and I say inverted commas because they probably look around the same age. It's just like how her worst fears are manifesting, but it's done in such a comically bad way. You cannot take it seriously. And then the way it cuts from those moments as well, it's so abrupt. Yeah, this film isn't great in quality. I don't think it's trying to be. I mean, this is basically a love letter to these B-movies of the 1950s, these creature features. I mean, they're never meant to be taken seriously at all. And I think it would be wrong of me to approach this and be like, oh, it's so bad because the plot is ridiculous. Like, it's about a woman transforming into a boss. That's not what it is. It's just that it's just very slow-paced and a bit boring, and I just couldn't really get on board with it. And I agree with what you say. It does feel like it was made in the 80s. It's one of those movies that it's like the way it's made. It's living in the past. It's not really updated. It really does show its age. I mean, if you compare this with the highly stylized, Clueless that came out the same year, and obviously budget is a factor here. It's crazy to think, wow, these two films came out in the same year because they are polar opposites. Obviously, the only thing they do have in common is they are featuring strong female leads, if you can call it that, with a bit of a voiceover as well, so there is that parallel. I mean, I think this was probably unintentional when we were planning these episodes, but they were actually been quite a nice uh, contrast to each other I think in looking at this no I think obviously my education of Roger Corman is quite limited I'm not gonna lie so I kind of knew what I was getting into but I can't say that I'm going into this as like a big fan of this type of movie it's one I would probably enjoy in a bad film club setting but when you're watching it on your iPad by yourself and time is ticking by and you could be watching something better it's not the best film to pass the time with. However, somebody has kindly uploaded it to YouTube so you don't have to worry about paying
0: for it. Yeah, I don't think it's particularly representative of Carmen's best. It's representative of the way that Carmen will produce movies very quickly and dwell on the exploitative elements to sell it. So it does reflect the way he produced movies. It's not necessarily reflective of the best types of his art because Roger Compton has produced and directed some great movies the AIP stuff with Vincent Price all the Edgar Allan Poe adaptations they're brilliant but with a guy that makes so much in terms of movie product a lot of it's going to be terrible because they churn these out at such a rate 14 movies in a season and it's all broadcast within kind of three or four months. The second season of Roger Corman Presents had 16 movies in it. So they were really churning these movies out. And it's not surprising that the quality is variable, I have to say. Got to say, though, Black Scorpion, which was also one of the movies in the first season, nicely done, tongue-in-cheek superhero. Well, superheroine movie because Black Scorpion is a woman that's fun and you know even if it shows its budget Black Scorpion it's a good way to pass an hour and a half this it's 81 minutes or something and it really does feel its length it doesn't really have a lot of plot to play with at the start and by the halfway point they're just throwing people in the way of her to kill off so it's just a bunch of corporate dickheads that are getting in a way that just need to be killed And by the end, she's just hallucinating so much that everybody is a threat to her, including the secretary, Mary, who has the best bit of continuity in the entire movie. At one point, Mary wanders down a corridor with straight hair, goes out for lunch, goes into the outdoor area, sits at a table. Mary's hair is curly. What happened between indoors and outdoors for that to happen?
1: Yeah, exactly. This film does not care about continuity in any way. It kind of reminded me of an adult version of the uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode, Teacher's Pet, from uh, the first season. I think it's like fourth episode ever of ever Buffy to be released. And it's about a praying mantis. So it is that seductive, older woman type. But actually, I think the character in this is a little bit more forthright and very forward in how she approaches her victims it's a bit rapey to a point but turn the table so it's her preying on these men and even when they're like no what are you doing yeah she's uh, not gonna take no for an answer so I thought that was quite interesting and a bit uncomfortable but it's handled so terribly in its clumsiness of the way it's acted and shot it's just yeah okay it's just one of those bad movies but not one that I got a great deal of enjoyment out of. Again, this is the episode where I'm very old and very grumpy, as we've already established. But I will say the wasp hybrid cat was pretty inventive, and that was funny. And I think knowing that the effects aren't going to be of the best quality in this film, that when you're waiting to get that image of that wasp cat, I mean, it is pretty hilarious. I'll give it that. It's almost on par with that film we saw at Abattoir many years ago with the mutant cat within a cat on a boat. I think it's definitely on par with that somewhere. This is just basically a film where you feel like you've seen it all before. And if they were producing that amount of content, you know this is all basically money-making. This is not really caring that deeply about the audience because they know, oh, yeah, well it's Roger Corman will stick on a well-known title. It's the VHS era. People are just going to rent any old shit, let's face it. We all did. We didn't have the selection that we have these days with streaming. So um, I can understand why people would have uh, ended up watching this and probably forgot about it straight after, because I know I will.
0: Yeah, it just goes to show what Americans watched on cable TV in the 90s if it's stuff like this. It's also the sort of movie where people leave explanatory emails laying around about this experimental wasp serum so that people can find them. So the secretary's very clumsy with leaving important information around. So there's the email. And then at one point she has a book on her desk, which just has the big title, Wasps, on there. <laughs> there's lots and lots of exposition around the edges of this movie, where if the plot's flagging a little bit, then people will just talk about the habits of wasps in the middle of a scene, just to feed you in a little bit more information for later on in the movie. None of it makes a lick of sense. This whole thing about wasps cocooning things, you think oh this is going to lead to a big sort of alien type sequence where she finds loads and loads of people cocooned. It sort of happens but it's not anywhere near as spectacular as Alien. It's dumb as shit this movie. It's dumb as shit. It gives me no pleasure to rip on a Jennifer Ruby movie because I like some of the stuff that she's done outside of this movie Nightmare on Elm Street 3 great uh, The Fear Inside great this one nah, not really unfortunately and even if you look at it with the most tolerant of eyes it's still quite dull as you say not an awful lot happens in it and the gore isn't really there to pay off And the nudity just feels grafted on, just feels slightly tawdry. It doesn't really form part of the plot, for the most part. And you're right about the slightly rapey feel of the sequences Mm -hmm. where she's going after the blokes who have wronged her. Interesting flip. Yeah, if it had been the other way around, it would have been, oh God, this is really, really awful. I guess it's still quite awful in the way that it does it but as you say the ineptitude of how it's done undercuts it completely because it's so stupid and it's so clunky that you end up being a little bit bored rather than offended and the big climax it basically boils down to the wasp creature having a bit of an attack of conscience and then allowing itself to get blown up which is kind of a, so what, sort of ending. So even the ending isn't great. It doesn't really build to anything. Go figure. It's one of those movies which I remembered it from seeing it years ago. It's very, very hard to get hold of even now, which is why we ended up having to go to YouTube, for it because it's not on any disc release as far as I can see it isn't even on any streaming services in the UK as far as I can see so we ended up getting this VHS rip copy from YouTube I'd have quite happily rented this if it had been available and then probably thought why the fuck did I rent this but from 95 to now some of it came back to me but what didn't come back to me was how plodding and dull it was for most of its runtime and the odd bit like the cat attacking the doctor. There's tiny little bits of invention in there, which just about keep you watching it. But overall, it's no great shakes, this movie. And I remember my reaction to this when I watched it on on tape. It wasn't the same this time. It was kind of, you know, why, why did it get that reaction out of me in the 90s? Even back then, because I was watching some fairly gory and... I wouldn't say extreme horror movies, but stuff that pushed the envelope a little bit. So I can't understand why. This must have caught me at a weird time. Either that or it was just like, oh, it's got Jennifer Rubin in it. I'll watch it. And maybe at that sort of time, I was just giving anything with Jennifer Rubin in it a pass. I understand why. But now I just sat through it and thought, this is just so unutterably plodding. If it had leaned into its ridiculousness a bit more, I think it would have been a lot of fun. But the problem with this is it's a stupid plot, but it doesn't want to admit how stupid it is. And it tries to deal with it with some level of seriousness, which is completely the wrong way to go about this movie. This should be utterly ludicrous. Everything should be turned up to 11. Everything should be absolutely bonkers. And because it's trying to throw in a bit of commentary about, fashion and the way that we view women, yeah, I'm fine with all of that, but you still have to make it fun. You can make a point and still make the movie absolutely fucking ridiculous, which it isn't. The problem with The Wasp Woman is it isn't ridiculous enough. It needs to be completely and utterly ridiculous for it to work, and it isn't.
1: Absolutely. I couldn't have said anything more than that, because that is absolutely right on what this film's problem is and they just put little to no effort into it so even with the opening sequence it just begins with this scantily clad woman on a jog and I think there's this I don't know if he's like a a garbage collector guy or a bin man as we say in the UK and he just sort of warns her to keep away from the wasps so how he has this knowledge of wasps I don't understand and then obviously she's like oh I run in this direction every day so off she goes, and then she gets attacked by a really badly CGI swarm of wasps. Now, you can forgive it because it is meant to look stupid. It is a B-movie, and it was the 90s. We don't have the technology. We, You know, we've been spoilt with the realistic CGI that we get in films today, and sometimes it's hard to look back and forgive these things. Like, they just did not have those resources. But this is pretty bad, and she just sort of falls over screens You don't really see anything. Then the opening credit sequence begins, where they are blatantly ripping off Candyman. I think everything about the way they were having these swarms of wasps coming together is very reminiscent of the bees in Candyman. And then even the score, because they have this ethereal vocals in in the score and the theme music. But the theme music was really annoying. I hated it probably as much as that other film you made me watch a few years ago that we oh, don't agree
0: on are we not talking about the bogeyman again are we yeah
1: just a quick comparison <laughs> <laughs> well the a Tim the, yeah.
0: the tim Krog, electronic score in the bogeyman
1: yeah this was on par with awful as awful as that for me so yeah I, I do struggle sometimes to appreciate the same things as you, but <laughs> that's fair. You know, it'd be boring if we were all the same. That, that's so. fair.
0: I mean, and to be perfectly honest, I didn't really appreciate this the second time around either because it just didn't hit any of the notes. I'm guessing that maybe the first time I watched it very late and very drunk. And I think you need to be very drunk to get a lot out of this, specifically very drunk with another group of very drunk people. I think you might enjoy it then. As you say, in a bad film club setting, I think you'd have a hoot with this movie because there's so much to unpack with an audience. But you're right. If you're sitting on your own, just watching this and then trying to make some sort of art defence for it in a podcast, not going to work, really. There's nothing you can say about this movie. You can't go in front of people and just say that this is a good movie because it's just too difficult a task. And the reason it's not a good movie is that it just isn't fun. This should be fun. And it's not. And I'm disappointed that it's not. Because if you look at the plot on paper, you just think, this is going to be so daft. I'm going to have a really good time with this. It just isn't daft. It just tries to do something a little bit different. But in trying to do that, it takes all the fun out of it. I want ridiculousness. Even the wasp kills. Yeah, the costume's stupid. And people basically don't move while this wasp creature gropes them a bit and then they fall to the floor dead. But even that, it just seems a little bit lacking in excitement and invention. Oh, they're dead. Let's get them out of the way. Who's, who's the next one? Yeah. Oh, he's coming to her house. Like he's dead as well. Right. Okay. She's suspecting the secretary now. Let's get her over. So, and it's they are just lining people up by the end to just get killed off. Whereas that works in a slasher movie, this isn't a slasher movie. You need to be at least on side with some of the characters. But the characters here are either so repulsive or so boring that you don't have anything to hang on to. The boyfriend, for instance. How fucking dull is her boyfriend? I got no interest out of him at all. Even when it's painted as this kind of white knight at the end, he's riding to save the day, save the secretary. Again, I was just thinking, I don't give a fucking shit whether he saves her or not, because he's so dull. She's all right. I mean, the secretary, she's probably the most interesting character in the movie, save for Janice. But I don't really care who gets out of this. I'm really not bothered. Oh, it's got blown up. I wonder if they're going to have something where something's survived. But yeah, the cat wasp is still around, isn't it? Well, we never got Wasp Woman 2 cat wasp which is a bit of a shame because I'd have liked to seen 80 minutes of the cat flying around attacking people. But there you go. We never got the cat wasp.
1: I mean, I think that premise would wear thin after a while, (laughs) given the uh, quality of this one. And yeah, it's all so bland. The characters are bland. There's just nothing going for this film, really, apart from a glimpse of a wasp cat, which is its saving grace. I mean, I didn't mind the wasp woman costume. I mean, it is ridiculous. It's meant to be and it's very much of its time. So I did appreciate that. As I say, it's like very reminiscent of Buffy, I think, that in that kind yeah. of cult fantasy TV shows of the day. So that I didn't mind so much, but yeah, this, this film didn't entertain me. And going by IMDb scores, IMDb haven't been entertained either. It's got a 4.1 out of 10, which I think is fairly generous, And then there's no critic reviews whatsoever on Rotten Tomatoes, and it has a 13% audience score. There is a small minority of people that clearly see some merit in this film. We are not in that 13%, sadly.
0: Unfortunately not, no. I'm pretty sure that cable TV movies, the critics, would have had a look at it and certainly probably had a look at the title and thought, nope, nope, not touching that. 13% audience. I can't disagree with that because, yeah, 13% of people thought this was kind of good or above. Fair enough. Somebody might have enjoyed this. I guess if you've been extremely forgiving about it, it may have some pleasurable elements, this movie, but it just feels thrown together. And even with decent actors in it, you've got Jennifer Rubin, you've got Daniel J. Travanti better known, Phil Street Blues, you've got Garrick Graham. So you've got decent actors in there, but they're given nothing to do apart from all of these archetypes. So Garrick Graham is just this sleazeball. He just has to be this corporate knobhead most of the time. Everybody's just playing one note, as you say. There's no nuance. There's no subtlety to this movie at all. And I know that a movie called The Wasp Woman isn't going to have a lot of subtlety in it, but you've got to write characters that we at least care about on some level. And nobody in this movie made me care about them, which fatally torpedoes the movie because even something as ludicrous as this needs something to anchor it, some character that you are going to root for and think, yeah, I'm going on a journey with them. And it doesn't really seem to know whether it wants to portray Janice as a supervillain or misunderstood or somebody who can't control her urges. If they were going for something like Marilyn Chambers in Rabbit, where she's ostensibly the bad guy, but she's not really. It's not her fault. If they were going for that sort of thing, that doesn't work. And it's just trying to play too much off the character because at one point she just wants the serum so badly and then she's having second thoughts and then she's not and then she's got this bit at the end where she suddenly realises how bad she's been. It's just like, well, you know, make your mind up about this. But by the end of it, I just couldn't give a toss.
1: No, the motivations of the main character were not clear in the slightest. And, yeah, it made you feel like, are we supposed to be on her side or are we supposed to view her as this antagonistic character? Because she was the central point of it, you assume that we're meant to be taking her side throughout, but it just does not work at all. And I think considering this was on the cusp of the Scream era, And how this was the state of horror films pre nineteen ninety six. Sometimes it makes you realize how bad things were when you see content like this. There was just no invention anymore. The genre definitely needed that well earned kick up the arse, which it did get. Thanks to Wes Craven, in my opinion. Of course, this is just an example of how derivative the genre had become at this point. And I think if content was continually made and churned out in this vein, I don't know if
0: horror would have stood the test of time like it has. Yeah, I think the mid-90s were a bit of a watershed moment for horror. Interestingly, 1995 also saw Jennifer Rubin in a sci-fi horror called Screamers, which is really good. So she kind of had both extremes. I mean, Screamers is really tense and it's quite nasty and it's got a good cast. And it motors along. This is the polar opposite of Screamers. So, if anybody's looking for a 1995 Jennifer Rubin horror movie, go look for Screamers. This one, if you want to actually see something this bizarre, I would recommend that you dip in for 10 minutes. But you don't want to stick it out for the full 81 because nothing happens of any consequence. Fast forward to the bits where you see the Wasp costume. Oh, and the Wasp cat, obviously. But everything else you can go to your grave happy that you have never seen the wasp woman you have not missed anything if you haven't seen this movie
1: absolutely it's just predictably boring at the end of it and yeah these were two movies of 1995 I think I'm gonna have to go with clueless as my favorite out of the two I was having (laughs) high hopes that a horror movie would fulfill my enjoyment slightly more but no, I'm going to have to go for the girly teen movie that I didn't care for that much
0: either. Well, I'm certainly going for the girly teen movie because I did like Clueless, even on the umpteenth watch of it. This is not representative of 1995 as a a movie, because we did Dangerous Minds 1995. So there was stuff out that year that was pretty worthy and good and entertaining and worth a watch even now. But I couldn't pass up a chance to do The Wasp Woman on this because you're never going to see it anywhere else at the moment, unless they have a really shiny release of The Wasp Woman. Is like Arrow Video ever going to do The Wasp Woman? I very much doubt it. It's not going to get the fanfare and the extras and the commentary and stuff, because (laughs) I'm sorry, Wasp Woman, but quite frankly, it just doesn't deserve it. I do wish we could chat longer. And that's it for episode 95 of the HD Movie Podcast. As always. Thank you for listening.
1: And if you enjoyed this content and would like to check out our future episodes, you can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at HD Movie Podcast.
0: We've left episode 95. We're not doing 1996 for episode 96. We're going to do something else. We're going to do a sequel without having done the original. We are going to delve into the mystery of The Cool Rider in Greece 2.
1: Now, be prepared for this, because this film is just very difficult to decipher the mystery. It just plays into it so well, where you just don't know who is under those goggles and that helmet. You just will not know until reveal at the end, and each time, it will shock you. Grease 2 is one of my favourite bad movies of all time, and I can't frigging wait. It's about time that we uh, tackle this one, so... Get ready with us and we'll see you in the next episode.
0: Yeah, it's another Michelle Pfeiffer movie as well. So we've turned into a bit of a Michelle Pfeiffer fest. This is going to be a good one. I can feel it. Until we tackle the labyrinthine mystery of The Cool Rider. Stay safe, everybody. We'll see you soon. The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Hayley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. It's music, is written and performed by Mitch Bay. You can find the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, Podchaser, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and Podbeat.